Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 19th, 2019. On this week's episode, we catch up on all of the happenings down in Charlotte. Yoan Makata's rehab stint... Luis Roberts' fatigue issue, Nick Magical adapting to AAA pitching, Zach Collins' adjustments at the plate, the wonders of Yerman Mercedes, and the importance of having a support system in the clubhouse from someone who knows it quite well on trying to make the transition from Jose Contreras. Our man down in Charlotte, Jonathan Lee, will join the show to share the latest, including his interview with Jose Contreras, including why... Also why fatigue may not be that big of a stretch, really, for Luis Robert. Oh, and by the way, Robert faced Diarno Navarro in Sunday's game. That's right, Diarno Navarro pitched in a AAA game. We'll also preview the upcoming Minnesota Twins series as the White Sox have nine games left against the Twins and seven games left against the Indians. Can the White Sox play a pivotal role in spoiling one of these two teams' chances in winning the American League Central? Of course, we'll answer your questions in the Minor League Report. Of course, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. First, we recap the series in Anaheim, which, let's face it, didn't go well for the White Sox as they lost three out of four. But all of the attention was in the broadcast booth, which ended up being a smart idea. Joining me to discuss how we like the guest broadcasters is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, 
It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What a pleasure us White Sox fans got to enjoy this weekend while watching the games because of the people that were in the booth. I would say by and large, yes. I think uh, one of the choices was rather divisive. Some fans really got it or were amused by it. Others were not, uh, you know, had to turn it off within an inning and I can see why. But uh, yeah, it was a nice change of pace. And I think a good use of Benetti's uh, personality and connections. I think if you have a guy who is a professional broadcaster and maybe hard to tell apart from, uh, I guess, like you know, the bulk of the league in terms of his style, it's one way to distinguish him and set him apart is by you know, using him for, uh, or, or I should say using his uh, open-mindedness to bring in other people who are uh, maybe not traditional analysts, but have something to say. Yeah, especially Saturday and Sunday. I feel like we got to know Jason Benetti a little bit more as far as his personality, especially his sense of humor, right? We've we've heard him and Steve Stone go back and forth in a very uncle-nephew kind of relationship that they have in the broadcast booth. But I thought with him bringing in Mike Shore and Michael O'Brien, uh, Shore was on Saturday and Sunday was O'Brien, that it kind of pulled back the the current a little bit and we got to know at least Jason's tight, you know, sense of humor style. Yeah. It was kind of funny, especially on, on Saturday's broadcast with Mike Schur. It seemed like, you know, Mike Schur was there to talk about baseball and Benetti really wanted to ask him a lot of TV questions. And, uh, uh, you know, I think on, on Sunday, there's more of a balance with Benetti leading the way, but I think on Saturday, um, you know, Benetti had a lot of curiosity about Schur's line of work and Schur had a lot of curiosity was going on in the field. And, it was a, a little bit unique and I guess maybe counterintuitive to yeah, to hear the baseball guy talking TV and the TV guy talking baseball, but I also enjoyed it. And, and you know, as I wrote about in, in the recap of Saturday's game, that sure kind of reminded me, or, or at least it's it's what I think it would feel like if one of us were in the booth, um, you know, respectful. Um, and, and you know, there's some preparation. He didn't try to overreach and try to do Stone's job, but he also talked about what he saw from his vantage point. Uh, you're talking about defensive shifts and uh, pickoff moves and box and, you know, things that the average, or I shouldn't say average fan, but say like the, the well-versed fan would be able to detect and, and maybe, you know, uh, viewers couldn't see from the broadcast. So, I mean, that was cool. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the dynamic there. I wonder, you know, whether it would get maybe not old after one, you know, one airing, but maybe just a little bit uh, repetitive or one note after one airing. But for the one, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, for Mike Shore, though, I mean, the guy is busy. I can understand that him calling a baseball game is a breakaway from what he does every single day. I mean, he's got two TV mm-hmm. shows. The Good Place is wrapping up its final season. I'm sure that's a bit stressful. Uh, he's got Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is currently shooting season seven. Uh, so he's got one show starting a new season. He's got another show having a series finale. And he signed a new deal with NBC to produce more new content (laughs) for them. So I'm sure broadcasting a baseball game was really exciting for him to break away from what he does six days a week uh, to to come up with Mm -hmm. so many different types of TV shows. It was great. It was a lot of fun on Twitter. I try to every tweet, try to have a gift from one of his TV shows that uh, he's worked on or that he currently has. It was a lot of fun. So thank you to all that follow me on Twitter and played along on Saturday. What did you think of Michael O'Brien? I thought it was okay. Um, I, I would say maybe a step down from sure. And, and that uh, sure just maybe sounded a little bit more um, either confidence. I, I mean, I would maybe confidence because I imagine O'Brien is a Sox fan having more connection to the booth 
in the team and having more people, you know, watching him, uh, you know, maybe, or, or feeling like more of a connection to the people watching him, you know, I could see him being maybe a bit apprehensive and, um, took him, I guess, a while to find his, uh, I guess, find his voice or his role in the booth. Um, cause he wasn't as confident in his baseball observations as sure was. So, uh, you know, it was a little bit different and, and maybe a little bit of a, a step down from what, uh, happened the day before, but I enjoyed it. And, and I, uh, I enjoyed the, some of the offhand references, uh, that he dropped in the middle of, uh, you know, it was, it was, he doesn't really have a dynamic voice. So you just had to listen to it, but he talked about, you know, how much he wanted Jose Abreu to hang around because the guy ate his passport to come here. You know, you don't hear Steve Stone stay there. <laughs> you don't hear, uh, you don't hear, uh, Steve Stone make a foot fetish reference in the middle of a uh, sentence, uh, which he dropped his video you know, very, uh, casually talking about, uh, what people will find when they Google Jason Benetti. And, and I didn't uh, expect to hear that and, 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 uh, laughed at that. But, uh, yeah, so like the, the humor was sneakier and, uh, I, I liked how he kept beating himself up off the, uh, the, the missed call about John Jay not catching a liner. And that was fun, but it was, it was more of a, I guess, a more subtle sense of humor. Um, and so it required a closer listen, but for a, for a day, I, I was willing to do it. And the uh, shade to Betty White and Lady Gaga. Oh yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and he did you know, like just basically just railing against Betty White for not accepting one of his sketches. Right. That's all it took. So I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, there is some self-deprecation there that was uh, a pretty constant through line through the whole thing. All right. So we're burying the lead. Clearly, the most talked about thing, not just for the White Sox, but maybe all of Major League Baseball from this weekend was Bill Walton on Friday's broadcast. And I was very skeptical, Jim, because during college basketball season, and I do enjoy watching college basketball, and if I'm having a tough time going to bed, I will watch the Pac-12 conference games. And it is a lot of Bill Walton. And it is an acquired taste. The man definitely knows the game of basketball. But yes, he can have these tangents where it does... You get a sense that maybe he's hallucinating during the broadcast or he is just one weird old hippie uh, and he does not have any limits on anything that he touches and uh, and any subject is in play, especially during a basketball broadcast. So you take that Bill Walton and you put him during a baseball game and I didn't know what to expect but I loved it. I thought it was terrific. What did you think about the Bill Walton broadcast? I thought it was okay. I like some parts of it. There were some, I guess, tangents or sentences he said, some arrangement of words that caught my ear in a way that uh, amused me enough. And, and like when he said that uh, he was trying to find out what kind of spine you have and if you're willing to fight for the pride of the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> When he went from Mike Trout to Tony Salmon to Charlie the Tuna talking about exoskeletons. Like it was, you know, that's kind of where I enjoyed that tangent. Uh, you know, not knowing Lucas Giolito's name over and over again or James McCann's name over and over again. You know, talking about David Axelrod randomly and Bryant Gumbel. I'm just <laughs> these, yeah. The name dropping was okay, you know, maybe one at a time. But then, you know, hearing Brian Gumbel's name for the, the ninth time and... and that got a little bit old to me. So by the end of it and, and watching James McCann's post game interview when McCann was just like looking around, trying to wait for any kind of semblance of a question. Uh, and, and nobody is really stopping Walton. They're trying to pipe the music up like the Oscars to try to knock him off the, uh, knock him off the stage, but he wouldn't let go. So by the end of it, I was more or less worn out and, uh, happy was over, but, 
Uh, it kind of reminded me of, I don't, I don't know if you know the uh, podcast Super Ego or Pistol Shrimps Radio. Uh, two guys, uh, you know, it's Matt Gorley and Mark McConville, and they both, uh, yeah, they're, they're in both of them. And they basically specialize in stream of consciousness rambling. Uh, and they're able to do it in a, uh, you know, in, in Pistol Shrimps radios where they're calling a, a women's rec league basketball game and neither know anything about basketball. But they just string these words together in, in ways that constantly, uh, you know, I've listened to basically everything they put out. It, it doesn't get old to me. So I, I was able to channel enough of that energy and enjoyment to filter it my own way to where I, I was all right with that it happened. But I don't think I'd want to hear it again anytime soon. Oh, I think he should call one of the games in San Diego next year. Because you're going to be there? Yeah, well, that's one. <laughs> yes, I will be there. and I, That's no fair. I, I'll DVR it. And I don't know, unless the game is really good. But he's from San Diego. And the man... Who is? He is. And, no idea. <laughs> well, he said it during the broadcast. Oh, no, you yeah, listening yeah. to Bill Walton, Jim? Uh, he knew it like he was a California tour guide. I thought that some of that was interesting. He dropped a lot of good book titles. So, I mean, like, there was some... Yeah, he had some really progressive views about, Mar- at least progressive relative to the White Sox broadcast booth of yore about Marvin Miller <laughs> yeah. and uh, baseball labor. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that was so some of the stuff he, he dropped and, and, and even if it was unrelated to baseball was rather refreshing. Um, other parts got stale pretty quickly. It's just funny. He's like, I love Jerry Reinsdorf. Five minutes later, Marvin Miller should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Bill, Bill Marvin Miller is like Jerry Reinsdorf's number one enemy, like of all time. He might be Don Fair. He might be number two behind Don Fair. Oh, good point. Good point. Uh, he's up there though. So yeah. it's just, I, I was laughing like the irony. Here's a man who, yes, you may know Jerry Reinsdorf because of his NBA broadcasting days, but Jerry Reinsdorf, baseball owner, does not like Marvin Miller whatsoever but you know what i i applaud uh bill as far as campaigning for miller uh to make it into the hall of fame i thought it was terrific but you know there's just some great one-liners from bill walton like fades of black hope ties last uh give ricky a contract extension and put him in the hall of fame Oh, oh, the uh, Aaron Bummer. He's not a bummer. He's a meteor. He's an asteroid streaming through the universe. <laughs> I like that he uh, call, uh, called a uh, said a, a um, complaint about a one of, one of the more astute observations he had, or at least you know, kind of on topic ones, is when they were too slow in a double play turn, and they were, and he uh, he implored the White Sox to be faster because the fate of the known world is in the balance. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, you, you even tweeted out some. I'm just, is it Mini Minosa or is it Mimosa? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that was funny. Like, the, yeah, and that's the case where, like, I was mildly amused by it the first time, especially since they didn't, you know, dwell on it. But then he did it, I think, two more times after that. And that's when it got a little bit, like, you don't have to talk so much. Okay. But. Well, it's a, again, though, this is a guy who's used to broadcasting basketball games and basketball games are pretty much nonstop. When yeah. you take a basketball broadcaster, especially a color guy who doesn't know the game of baseball all that much, and you're asking them to cover three plus hours. I mean, if you ever wanted to use an example of this is why baseball games are too long, you could use the Bill Walton broadcast game too long. Uh, as somebody that's very quick, uh, somebody that's used to a very quick pace has difficulty with a very slow game like the game of baseball. But I, 
again, this the White Sox broadcast was the number one trending topic Friday night. It drew tons of attention throughout Major League Baseball. More people paid attention to two teams that are playing below 500 baseball on the season than normal. And, uh, yeah, I, that's why I think the White Sox, they, once a year when they have a series in California, uh, Steve Stone is not going to be available. I say do it again. Next opportunity will be in San Diego because, let's face it, you could either watch Bill Walton broadcast another game with Jason Benetti or you could watch Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado for 27 innings from a Monday through Wednesday series and wonder to yourself, man, that could be the White Sox. Yeah. It's although Tatis is done for the year with a back issue. So, well, I'm talking yeah, about but, next but, year, uh, obviously. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, speaking of that, that injury, I was just thinking about it. Like, and, and it's as, as bad as that trade has been, the White Sox have lucked out that Tatis. <laughs> yeah. He missed the uh, last, you know, most of last season with a broken thumb and he had two injuries this year. So, I mean, he's missed a lot. You know, trade already looks awful. He's missed a lot of games. So, yeah, it's just when I when I look at the Padres, just uh, there, you know, it could be worse somehow. Like it's it's already it's it's amazing that I guess the enjoyment deficit is that big, but it could be worse actually. And then the final Bill Walton line that Jason Benetti refused to answer, and uh, I I caught that was the White Sox are killing him. Where does this team rank in the pantheon of greatest teams of the sport? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember. Yeah, one of the other lines Walton said was, uh, "Who's gonna stop him?" And I just thought, "Who's gonna tell him?" <laughs> he probably had no clue they were below five hundred. <laughs> they were in third place in the American League Central, and one of the ten worst teams in Major League Baseball. But you know what? He was excited. It was refreshing, especially for a Friday night nine oh seven start game for those that are in Chicago, and it got people across the country paying attention to the White Sox and Angels. Uh, so I thought it was a good idea. I'd like the White Sox to try it again, and I'm picking the San Diego series. But sounds like you, to you, Jim, that one and done is okay. I'm pretty good with it. I'd like to see him – I'd like to see Benetti you know, keep digging and keep calling people and, and, and seeing who else is there. Because I thought the Mike Schur broadcast, while not as, I guess, as much of a spectacle, I thought it was – I think equally valuable in terms of, uh, yeah, I would say more valuable in terms of information conveyed to White Sox fans watching the game, but I would say equally valuable in terms of just bringing a different audience and and uh, and just having the White Sox be known for something and something new and exciting and uh, you know some things that teams aren't doing. Well, we'll see now. I'm sure after what has happened, other teams, especially the California teams are going to invite Bill Walton to do a game. The White Sox are going to start a trend here. Yeah, and I think, yeah. And I think that might get old. Like, I think the that's a case where, you know, fans might have, yeah, I would say casual baseball fans, basketball fans watching it because Bill Walton's there. I think they understand, you know, they wouldn't watch it so much a second time just because they know what he is going to say. You know, they know what it's going to sound like. I don't think it would be nearly as interesting the second time. I think the whole idea of Walton calling the game was, what does this sound like? And now fans know, and I don't know if the, you know, I think it was mostly novelty. Uh, of course it was. But again, I, I think this will create a trend. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised. It'd be nice if so. It'd be nice if the, if the White Sox uh, actually led the way in regard. I mean, they led the way in terms of uh, 
uh, protective netting and that was well mm-hmm. received and i think it's been a uh yeah a positive development even if some fans gripe about it but you know it's nice to see them when they lead in ways that uh, teams follow for uh you know for good and interesting and uh entertaining reasons yeah the non-baseball operations for the white Sox, i think are having a good 2019 season and i'm sure there are I know that there are White Sox employees that do listen to this that are non-baseball operations, the sponsorships, the Goose Island edition, the new ballpark food, some of the new additions at the ballpark, the netting, as you mentioned, Jim, and even in the broadcast booth to invite different types of personalities to kind of spice up a a August series on the road for the White Sox during the dog days. These were all excellent decisions, and I think partly the reason why White Sox fans, uh, we they have seen an increase in attendance per game this year. Uh, obviously, a lot of them wanted to buy tickets to go see Aloy Jimenez or maybe even catch Dylan Cease, and Lucas Giolito has been good. But the overall satisfaction for the Chicago White Sox Outside of baseball operations and what is on the field, I think the White Sox are having a very good 2019 with the marketing and the safety and in the broadcast booth. Uh, On the field, positives, Eloy Jimenez had a good weekend. (laughs) He had his first career triple and he had two home runs. Not much Mm -hmm. else to say other than, you know, one thing that caught my eye and Joe Sheehan with his newsletter for those that do subscribe to it. Made a good point. He, he wrote about the Chicago Cubs, Jim, and their road struggles. But he, the point he astutely made is that the Cubs bullpen, which a lot of people blame for their road woes, and they have had a difficult time in the ninth inning during the last month, still have a top 10 bullpen. And you go around of the more national baseball analysts, and you're starting to see a trend over the weekend is that there may not be enough quality relievers to go around in Major League Baseball. A lot of teams, a lot of teams that are going to be winning divisions like the Minnesota Twins or the Cleveland Indians, which we'll talk about more in depth in a moment, they don't have what we would call good bullpens. They are very suspect to bullpen meltdowns. And I draw this to the White Sox because it seemed like they had this combination where they hand the ball to Aaron Bummer, Aaron Bummer hands it off to Evan Marshall, Marshall hands it off to Alex Colomay, and the White Sox win. Well, they lost three out of four, and one of those games they should have won because they had a 5-2 to two lead, but Evan Marshall had his meltdown and seems to be that he is regressing Uh is the league finally catching up to Evan Marshall, Jim? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, kind of reminds me of Matt Albers and, and Matt Albers' magical and then suddenly tragic 2016 run with the White Sox where he has one, you know, he's kind of a one-trick pony. Uh, with, with Albers, it was the sinker, and with Marshall, it's kind of a sinker slash changeup. You know, they both are ground ball. They don't, they don't uh, seek to miss bats. It's more of a, I guess, happy accident when they do. And yeah, I think when he saw Marshall going against the Angels, they just were able to scout him. And then it seemed like they knew that if the pitch starts low, let you go. Like, even if it's like thigh high, just like, well, it's going to drop out of the zone. They didn't seem like they were entertaining even swinging that much. And Marshall wasn't missing by a whole lot, but he was missing pretty reliably and never really put them in counts to where the Angels would have to expand. And the Angels are a team, too, that... uh, they, they don't strike out much. Uh, I think they're second in baseball behind the Astros, or at least in the American League behind the Astros in terms of uh, fewest strikeouts. 
So, you know, it's a challenge for a guy like Marshall who doesn't really miss bats and the Angels didn't offer and he got behind and walked guys. And yeah, it was just, uh, I, I think, you know, Marshall has been walking a tightrope for a while. Um, uh, he somehow managed to lower his ERA from like three to 273 uh, over his previous 10 innings, even though he had allowed 15 base runners and given up two homers like these. Somehow those two homers are the only runs he allowed, even though he had pretty steady traffic. Uh, on the base paths otherwise so it seemed like he was walking this tightrope and it was gonna uh he's gonna fall off it eventually and so this was the one that it happened to be but when you look at the way the white Sox bullpen was organized before the season you know marshall really wasn't part of the plan he was a non-roster invitee um you know they they had bigger hopes for you know guys like ian hamilton jose ruiz mm-hmm. and uh you know just they never were able to put together a high octane um, seven, eight, nine combination, or at least I would, should say a seven, eight combination. Caleb Furr disappointed. Jace Fry hasn't been uh, really a guy to face righty. So Marshall is kind of like their plan F. And I, I think that is, as a plan F, he's worked pretty well as uh, when you're trying to think of him as like a plan B or C going into 2020, probably not. And he's probably somebody who uh, you, you thank him for your contributions this year and then seek an upgrade and, uh, if he finds a better opportunity elsewhere, then so be it. Yeah, don't be surprised during the offseason of the White Sox spend some of the resources on bolstering the bullpen again. Because I think it's a yeah. good point that other analysts are making is that there may not be enough quality bullpen arms to share for all 30 teams. And that makes a lot of sense on how the New York Yankees attack mm-hmm. the offseason where they have been spending all of their money in free agency on the bullpen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, uh, the the way the Yankees do it, and really the only way the Yankees are really flexing their uh, financial muscle is spending way more in relievers than other teams do. But uh, I kind of think it's a good thing overall because I think Buster Olney also wrote about this recently and, and uh, seen a number of people note that bullpen ERAs are basically the same as starter ERAs. And uh, used to be in, that's kind of an anomaly. It's in baseball history, at least since the modern bullpen came about and, and teams try to save most of their innings to, you know, their best three shutdown relievers. And now I think it's maybe, you know, just stretched a bit too far and there are just too many average, mediocre, I guess, inconsistent uh, arms that are getting too much exposure and having to carry too heavy a load and just uh, hitters who are uh, more able to quick strike with this baseball and with their you know, new swing approaches just uh, are defeating, I, I guess, just how uh, exposed these bullpens are. Like they just, there aren't enough tricks to fool all the hitters who are hitting all the home runs this year. And ultimately, I think that's a good thing when it comes to watchable baseball. And I think the league was already trying to counter that anyway by, um, you know, making relievers face a minimum of three batters next year. They're trying to, yeah, I guess, diminish the importance of bullpens and have starters go a bit longer into games, or at least incentivize teams that, build good uh you know five-man rotations or even like four starters and a iffy fifth you know that's uh, teams doing that what might be ahead of the game uh when it comes to you know the next couple years as this transition works out but yeah it's it's i think ultimately good if teams just can't load up with 11 guys who throw 97 miles per hour and get all the outs well that was the series in anaheim again the white Sox lost three out of four and they are now going to be moving on to Minneapolis this upcoming weekend. But before we preview that series, uh, a a column that dropped Sunday evening in the Chicago Tribune from Paul Sullivan. And it is titled 
Twitter trolls clearly annoy White Sox GM Rick Khan, even though he insists he's not frustrated by angry tweets. And it is a lot of the a lot of the column is rehashing uh, what we discussed on Monday show last week when Rick Khan went on the NBC Sports uh, White Sox Talk podcast and he chimed in his thoughts about White Sox Twitter. And again, we talked a lot about that last week. And I wanted to touch on this column because I think when it comes to those that cover the Chicago White Sox and talk about the White Sox, there are a lot of talking points that Paul Sullivan brings out because he covers in the column what Rick Hahn has said and what happened in the interview. And in one of Sullivan's better columns that he's written, especially in 2019, uh, he went... And he interviewed Houston Astros general manager Jeff Lunau on how Lunau handles the criticism on Twitter. In his column, quote, there's nothing wrong with blocking people on Twitter or keeping your Twitter handle anonymous. Though I'm not sure whom Han is blocking since no one knows his real handle. And if Han really wanted to start a block party, he could always start a Twitter account using his real name as Astros general manager Jeff Lunau has done for years. And I follow Jeff Lunau and Jeff Lunau does tweet often. Uh, also, um, the Mets general manager Brody Van Wagenen uh, tweets out as well, uh, especially what happened to the trade deadline. He tried to get out in front of the media and was trying to have a clear message sent out to the media. And Sullivan pointed out two general managers that are not hiding behind anonymous Twitter handles. And then also not bragging that he blocks White Sox fans that he thinks are just being dour uh, we can use one of our phrases from Sox Machine and old Southside Sox uh, and just being too negative. But nobody knows that Rick Hahn is blocking you because, again, his Twitter handle is anonymous. Jim, I know you got an opportunity to read the column. What were your thoughts from Paul Sullivan? Well, you know, like you said, it's nothing we didn't say really aside from that he talked to the GMs that you mentioned. But it's nice to see, uh, you know, somebody in the media who isn't you know, part of the White Sox media, uh, which is the, you know, NBC Sports Chicago and, and the White Sox MLB team, you know, doing it. And I think Sullivan's kind of taken pride, or at least his role in covering the White Sox is somebody who needles Han, or at least likes to poke through the, I guess, the the law degree MBA speak, you know, that he, uh, you know, tries to say a lot without saying anything. And uh, I think, you know, I'm thinking back to 2016 when Sullivan called out Han for ducking the media and then Han immediately came out and said like, oh, transparency is the number one thing. You know, it just, he is able to, I think, annoy Han a way that other writers in town either uh, are unwilling to do or just don't really think about the White Sox enough to do it. So I kind of appreciate it that way. But um, it reminded me when he talked about Lunau and how Lunau talks about fans, you know, Han at one point, you know, back when he first took over um, as GM and, and before uh, the uh, disastrous 2013 season, he was at the Sabre um, Analytics Conference, I think it was in Arizona that year, and he talked about how he read blogs and he actually he singled out Southside Sox where it was at the time and, and said that, uh, you know, he enjoyed reading it. He said uh, um, that uh, he said that our information was incomplete, but he'd like to see how I'll just read his quote here. I like to see how they approach our decisions and analyze where we're going and not just how it's playing, so to speak, but what is an outsider's point of view from someone who clearly wants what's best for the organization. There is a real role for fan blogs for lack of a better description. 
And now he's railing on bloggers for kind of doing the same thing. It's just, you know, back in 2013, uh, Han was new on the job and he wasn't Kenny Williams and they just nearly um, made the postseason the year before. And so there's a lot of reason to like what he was doing and, and like the idea of a, a change of uh, uh, changing of the guard at the top. Uh, and now in 2019, you know, after all these losing seasons, you know, he hasn't posted a winning one yet. And the rebuild is getting a little bit stale right now because of the problems in the farm system and uh, just the lack of, uh, I guess, spending at the top level to, to use Rick Hahn's word, augment that. Um, you know, he's just getting a bit tired of that input that we provided before. So that's just, I, I think, uh, you know, probably everybody is just a little bit old in this case, because, you know, as we talked about last week, there is really there aren't really many cases where a GM has had that many losing seasons, had two chances to rebuild is there. And so I think there's just kind of a familiarity on both sides that <laughs> breeds contempt. And Han probably feels a lot of contempt for White Sox bloggers or fans or voice, you know, whatever fans are not saying what he wants to hear, or at least he has more critical. It's probably just wearing on him as, you know, as a very human response, but also, you know, it's uh, just been a lot of losing and it's his, you know, he works for a, one point something billion dollar franchise in a in an industry that's all theoretically about competition. Um, you know, winning should matter more than uh, it has when it comes to I guess the lack of change in the White Sox organization. Rick Hahn is not Kenny Williams. Kenny Williams, I felt Jim during his tenure as general manager, and probably even today in the role that he has. It just he seems like a duck, water off the back, and I think Paul Sullivan is right. I think the things that maybe we have said, the things that we have tweeted, other things that people have written on other White Sox blogs and other media outlets and the fans that get really angry and tweet out their frustrations. I do think it's got, got him under his skin. Yeah. And I think Kenny brought, you know, Kenny was a fighter and he marketed himself as such. Like he had no problems uh, being combative. And I think that kind of worked for him and yeah, at least for a, a long while. Uh, then I think, uh, you know, the lack of a follow-up or uh, encore to 2005, you know, warn everybody and, and, and so it was time for a change. But, uh, you know, he, he kind of, I guess, that was part of his persona. And I think the longtime writers like Ken Rosenthal likes to joke about how Kenny Williams likes to <laughs> basically threaten him. You know, it, you know not yes. uh, with a smile, but also like there's, there's a little bit of truth of the threat underneath that he has no interest in in talking or sharing information. So I, I think, yeah, th there's a little bit of reputation there, but also he enjoyed, I guess, the hand-to-hand -hand combat of it, or at least, you know, the, the verbal combat of that. I think Han tries to present himself as being somebody who's genial and above it and, uh, and, and uh, you know, is theoretically not bothered by it, but it is, yeah, I agree with you that I think it does get to him. And when he says it doesn't, um, you know, it comes off as disingenuous and, um, and, and I think with Han, you know, when you have that many losing seasons, I think that's just a really hard, it, it's hard to do that. It's hard to, um, uh, have people trust you when you kind of sound like you're lying to him about something that's pretty obvious. And if he said that it was bothered, if it bothered him a little bit, then yeah, I think, mm -hmm. you, you know, it does, you know, <laughs> as, as Sullivan's pointing out, you know, if he said like, yeah, it gets annoying at times, that's all you have to say, like at times. Um, you know, it's not my favorite thing in the world, you know, he could have said, and that would have been true enough. And it would have been like, you know, he's weak. It just means he's, he's human, you know, and Kenny was annoyed by and Kenny fought back, you know, that was kind of his way to respond to it was, you know, the, the 
legendary SoxFest conferences where he'd go back and forth. You know, just that was his way of doing it. Like that was his way of expressing frustration or confronting it or addressing it, however you want to put it. And Johan tries not to do that, but uh, it, it seems to get to him. And to say it doesn't, just uh, uh, it, it's you know a small ding, I would say, when it comes to the kind of whole honesty transparency thing, but it's also there. Well, the White Sox come back home on Thursday. I'm sure Rick Hahn will make himself available to the media, and it'll be the first time that he would have a media scrum since, as Paul Sullivan wrote in the Chicago Tribune, Rick Hahn unplugged uh, from the NBC Sports White Sox Talk podcast. So we'll see on uh, if anybody has follow-up questions for Rick Hahn from his comments uh, from that event and from Sullivan's column. But uh, I guess to wrap it up, I know that a lot of people think that he's a smart guy and Rick Hahn does come off as smart, but you don't look smart when you have seven straight losing seasons on your resume and you have zero winning seasons on your resume. That's just something he's going to have to overcome. And it would be probably best that he started making decisions on a baseball operation standpoint to start building towards that. As James Fegan also wrote in the athletic about the importance of calling up Luis Robert now, we'll talk about that call-up for Luis Robert possibility later in the show when our man down in Charlotte, Jonathan Lee, joins us. But let's go ahead and quickly preview the upcoming series in Minneapolis as the White Sox have a three-game series Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. You can search for sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And some of the reasons why I like buying tickets off SeatGeek, they have over 50,000 five-star reviews. They have great customer satisfaction. SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they display them on an interactive seat map. So I have a good understanding of what the view looks like depending on if I'm deciding between two or three different types of sections at a stadium. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy White Sox games, uh, tickets to White Sox games. I'll be going this upcoming Saturday against the Texas Rangers when they have beer Stein night. And I bought those tickets off SeatGeek and it'll be a fun time. And if you are looking to buy tickets for an upcoming White Sox game, whether you're waiting until they get home or you're going to follow them on the road, Make sure to take advantage of SeatGeek's offer. All you have to do is just use our promo code. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And the Minnesota Twins currently are in first place in the American League Central. They have built up a little bit of a buffer. They are now two and a half games ahead of the Cleveland Indians in the American League Central. At a moment there, it was tied between the two teams when the Indians went to Minneapolis uh, last week over the weekend over a four-game critical series. In the last 10 games for the Twins, they are 6-4. and four. Their home record is 36-26, and 26, and man, against the White Sox. 
These have not been competitive games. In 10 games against the White Sox, the Twins have won seven, and they have outscored the White Sox 71 to 29. Your pitching problems for this series Monday and Tuesday are night games starting at 7 10 p.m. Central Time. On Monday, it's Avon Nova against noted White Sox killer Kyle Gibson. On Tuesday, it's Ronaldo Lopez against Michael Pineda. And on Wednesday, this is a 12 10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Lucas Giolito against Jake Odorizzi. Jim, the White Sox have nine games remaining against the Twins, and they have seven more against the Indians. They were strong against Cleveland to start the season. They were 7-5 against the Tribe. But are they strong enough now in their current state as we head into the final six weeks of the season to help sway the American League Central and maybe act as a spoiler against the Twins and or the Indians? I think they're strong enough maybe to face the Indians, although the Indians' offense has improved. Jose Ramirez is back, um, and, and they've solved their outfield, their, their major outfield crisis with the uh, Oscar Mercado and uh, and Yasiel Puig, so it's like their their outfield is average, and average is good enough to complement a fully healthy and operational Lindor and Ramirez. So I mean that's that's fine, but you know they don't have the kind of home run power the Twins have, and I think the White Sox pitching staff at its worst or at least incomplete uh, does give up a lot of homers. So I can see them being a weaker matchup for the. Uh, twins and then, then the Indians the rest of the way and they're already seven five against the Indians they're three and seven against the Twins so there's already a difference there but I could see the the imbalance in records head to head being a factor at the end of the year when you know whichever team loses out on the division and has to fight for the wild card or um, you know misses out in October looks at their head to head records and wonders how they could have fared better and yeah that might be one case where the Indians might uh, scratch their heads a little bit or maybe this you know new and improved re configured Indians roster does the job, but I think, you know, rest of the way, I think the twins are the worst matchup for the White Sox. Yeah. They're just beating up on the White Sox. Is there anything specific that you're looking for in this three game series? I mean, they have their hot hands pitching in Nova Lopez and Giolito. Yeah. Just, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the lack of positives before I would add Giolito's performance against the angels is a positive, positive, uh, striking out 11 angels when they're really hard team to strike out. Uh, and, and considering how much he had to pitch from the stretch and, uh, how things didn't go his way he fought and he uh he managed to punch himself off the ropes and uh it was a very fine start for him and i think uh that's uh, a nice i guess uh, aggressive powerful giolito that you'd like to see the rest of the way as he finishes up this uh this more demanding season than he had last year in terms of uh amount of innings he's going to throw and pitches per start so you know that's that's a case where i want to see uh you know more of that and lopez you know just weathering a, a step back and, and trying to get back on track against a team that could take them deep. You know, that's another one. So uh, I'll be watching those two guys closely and otherwise just hoping to see more of uh, Eloy. Um, I, I should say, uh, you know, adding positives and thinking about it more. Tim Anderson too, just collecting hits. I'm not quite sure how he's doing it. He's covering the plate a bit better, but I mean, like he just drew his 10th walk of the season. He's not like any more selective at the plate. He's just being able to cover it a bit better and uh, put more hittable pitches in play which is great. Um, I'm just wondering if he can keep that up the rest of the season because it's a really unique and really hard to duplicate way of succeeding. And he's having an amazing August. And I guess I just want to see if that is able to keep up or if something has to give, what gives? Good points. Yeah, I mean, maybe the negative of the Bill Walton broadcast is that it overshadowed on how good Lucas Giolito was Friday night against the Angels. Lucas who? <laughs> Yeah, that that that, oh, yeah, that part got old to me. The not knowing the pitcher over and over, even if it was a bit, it was just 
like got a little old. <laughs> I'm fine with Bill Walton once a once a decade. But anyways, the Chicago White Sox again. This is going to be a tough three game series against the Twins, as the Twins have been very strong against the White Sox this year. As we talked about a couple of weeks, the White Sox are currently four and six, and they're one third of the way done of this tough thirty game stretch. We'll recap how the White Sox do in Minneapolis on Wednesday night during Sox Machine Live. But coming up next, let's catch up on what's happening down in Charlotte as there are a lot of storylines going on in AAA. Join us next is our man, Jonathan Lee, on the Sox Machine Podcast. I know it's baseball season, but many of us are gearing up for fantasy football. Some of you might be like me and you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. Just recently, I made a new website to track our standings and all of our past champions, which if you want to check out, you can go to DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops like me, no worries. They have a lot of website examples you can use for a variety of topics like a blog, or your photography, weddings, and even small business options. Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice they have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create our standings and allow our other participants in the league to track their progress. They also have other built-in tools like storage and custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools you can use to get your website found easily on Google. And every site is automatically optimized for any device. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your business, share your talents to the world, or like me, create a website for our fantasy football league. Whatever you're dreaming of, you'll need a website and Wix can help. Get started by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. There is a lot going on down at AAA for the Chicago White Sox affiliate, the Charlotte Knights. They are in a tight race in the International League for the wild card uh, as they have an opportunity to make the postseason, uh, which would be very cool for the Charlotte Knights. But there's a lot of storylines as well attached to the Chicago White Sox. So let's learn a little bit more about those storylines with our man down in Charlotte. It is Jonathan Lee. And hello, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. We miss you down here. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, man. Down in April. If you (laughs) haven't been White Sox fans to Charlotte, I highly recommend making a weekend trip down to Charlotte to catch the Knights. It's a beautiful stadium. Downtown is absolutely beautiful. But watch out for the scooters, man. They are dangerous. (laughs) Wait, don't they have scooters in Chicago now? (laughs) They're trying to introduce them, but... It's not going well. It's not. It's not. It's not <laughs> well, they're, they're perfect. They're perfect. They're perfect for a smaller city. They probably wouldn't do well in a city of three million people. No, no, they they are not doing well. They are not doing well. We'll see how long they last. But Charlotte is an absolute blast, and I had so much fun when I was down there in April. Now to the storylines. The one that White Sox fans have been paying attention to the most is Yoan Mikata's rehab stint. The hope is that. Yohan Mikata could rejoin the White Sox soon and hopefully continue his excellent play that we saw for most of the 2019 season. Jonathan, how has Mikata looked to you during his rehab stint? Yeah, he's been playing. So he, when he came here, he came here on Thursday and actually uh, did not play 
uh, on the first day he was here, which was on Thursday, and then played the Friday game, uh, the two games yesterday. And actually, I just picked up a lineup, and he is not in the starting lineup tonight. So he's on the bench tonight. So uh, actually, today it's a 505 start. So uh, he, 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 you know, I, I just, with any injuries coming back from from uh, injury from a strained uh, hamstring. So they're they're being gentle with him. He's he's taken uh, pregame both batting practice and uh, field work pregame in the two games that I was here early. Um, there's no BP today, so there's no field work today. I don't see him out there. Uh, so he's been good so far. Uh, he DH'd uh, the first game. He played uh, third base yesterday during the first game, and he DH'd the second game. Like I said, he's not playing tonight. So, well, he's not, at least he's not in the lineup right now tonight. So, uh, so far, so good for Yuang Mankata. Uh he was struggled a bit. He he actually hit that home run yesterday, but struggled a bit in the in the uh, first game of when he came back on uh, Friday. But overall, you know, it's a rehab start, so we're just getting him back in the flow of things and getting him ready to come back up and and rejoin the White Sox probably, what Monday or Tuesday. Okay, so it's gonna be. It sounds like it's going to be a short rehab stint then in Charlotte for Mikata, very similar to like Tim Anderson. Right, that's what it looks like. I mean, he looks like he's in pretty good shape. I mean, he's he's not he's not. There's no outward signs that he's favoring any kind of uh, uh, leg issues or anything. So he looks like he's good to go to get back to Chicago very soon. Well, one player White Sox fans would love to see in Chicago, and it's seemingly uncertain if he will be joining the White Sox this season. But that's Luis Robert. And Robert is having an excellent season at three levels, and he's continuing to hit in Charlotte. And the the new thing, last year it was Eloy Jimenez checking off the boxes. This year it's Luis Robert may not be called up because he may be fatigued. Jonathan, does Robert look like he's slowing down with the amount of games that he's played as we're speaking in mid-August? Yeah, it's it, 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 two things. It, it, it's it's very hot here. It's very hot in Charlotte, even for me. I mean, I'm, I'm from Boston, but I mean, I spent a lot of time in the South, in New Orleans and Mississippi. So it's probably in the mid-90s to say the heat index is over 100. So in the last couple of days, he, he has looked very tired. He looks very tired at the plate. The, the swings that he's the, 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 his swings look tired. Um, his effort looks tired as far as at the plate. Uh, and, you know, when, he, when, he, when he's in the field, he's just shagging balls. And uh, that's a lot of running around to do in very hot weather. So, yeah, he looks tired right now. Um, we'll see tonight. He's in, the, he's in the lineup. He's playing center field tonight. Uh, he did not play game two yesterday. So uh, he played in game one. And then, of course, he played. Uh, he's been playing since he came back, since they came back from the road trip. Trying to compare the two, because obviously you followed the storyline last year when Eloy Jimenez was in Charlotte and he didn't get called up and he was shut down for the rest of September. And as you're mentioning about Robert dealing with the heat and that he does look a little bit tired as far as in the field and in the batter's box, maybe that reasoning from General Manager Rick Hahn does have some merit. Again, trying to compare the two, and they are different types of ball players. But do you feel Luis Robert is as ready for the major leagues as it appeared that Eloy Jimenez was last year? I, I think I would say yes. Uh, I don't like I said. I don't see what more he can do down here as far as you know performing, um, as far as tightening up uh, uh, certain aspects of his game. I guess you, you know you can if you want to really you know nitpick stuff. That's that's definitely a. Uh, a possibility, but I mean, I understand to a, I understand both sides of the coin. I understand that the fans want to see him 
in uh, in Chicago. I understand the reasoning for allowing in when the season ends here in a week and a half. It's the last game, actually, actually two weeks to finish up on the road. Uh, I understand if they wanted to shut him down and just let him relax. I mean, he's been through three levels. That's a lot of um, a lot of hotels, a lot of moving around. Uh, let him let him go back to Florida. Let him go back to being with his family and um, kind of you know you know reinvigorate himself and get himself ready for 2020. I mean, why? I mean, why really push it when a the team is out of it? The team has no prospect for the playoffs. I can see if we were at you know a, a, a two or three games behind a wild card, but there's really no reason to bring him up at this point, in my opinion. Now, Nick Madrigal, he did finally hit a home run, his first in AAA. It was an inside-the-park home run to dead center field. Madrigal hasn't had the same type of success Robert had when he first started his AAA run, but Madrigal's still making good plays, and he's still not striking out. When you've got a chance to speak to Madrigal, how has his AAA experience been so far? Yeah, he's been down here for about three weeks now, so... And like I said, he's going through the same kind of process as far as trying to find a place to live and adjusting. So he's not going anywhere. He'll finish the season here. He looks good. I mean, he's the kind of guy where he he will just to on the field at least he'll just very very quickly to anywhere he is. He's just kind of, he's just that kind of ball player where you know he he's just a ball player, and he's the kind of guy where it doesn't matter where he is, whether it's Kannapolis, whether it's Winston, whether it's Birmingham. He's going to perform on the field. I, I don't think you have to worry about him performing on the field. Um, I don't see, once again, I don't see any reason to uh, bring him up or anything or get him uh, any more advanced than he is right now. He's still pretty young. So I would say then let him finish off the year here. Let him get acclimated. So today, actually today, uh, the he'll face a quality pitcher as uh, Corey Kluber is throwing a rehab session for Columbus for the Cleveland Indians. So we'll get a chance to see these guys against a bona fide Cy Young Award winning, a recent Cy Young Award winning pitcher. So that'll be very interesting to watch today, how these guys uh, go up against a, a legitimate number one starter of a major league team. Yeah, Magical's contact skills are most definitely going to be tested against Corey Kluber, which is terrific. Absolutely. Uh, for both Luis Robert and Nick Magical, because they're going to have to face Corey Kluber. Uh, when they get called up to Chicago, and they're going to have to face him multiple times a season. You know, one thing when speaking to others about Nick Madrigal is the leadership in the clubhouse and how his teammates gravitate to him as far as being the leader in the clubhouse and also on the field. Do you get that same impression with his so far three-week stint in AAA? It's hard to judge here because he's walking into a situation where he's the new guy. So you're not going to necessarily walk into a situation and be like, all right, well, I'm the man. You're going to listen to me. That's not especially at his age. That's, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys on this team who have major league experience, who are, um, you know, who, who have been to Chicago, who have been through, you know, the promotions and stuff. So I think he's just kind of trying to quietly, he's, he's a quiet kid, quietly find his way, as far as what I can see on the field and in his interactions with his teammates, it's, it's not him you know, being boisterous and being like, hey, look at me, and, and you know, I'm, I'm the guy who you're going to follow. He's kind of like very quiet around the cages. He's listening to Frank Manichino, his hitting coach. Uh, he is doing all the things necessary to be a good teammate. And I think right now it's just a process of him um, acclimating himself to his new teammates. I don't, I don't necessarily see him in a leadership role here just because he's so new. 
And then there is Zach Collins, who looks much different since rejoining the Charlotte Knights. He's got more bend in the legs at the plate. He's doing a better job of covering the plate hitting-wise. And the numbers are backing it up, as this might be the best we've seen Zach Collins look at any level with the Chicago White Sox. When you've spoken to Collins, Jonathan, are there any specific adjustments that he's trying to make since rejoining the Charlotte Knights from his time with the White Sox? And does he feel like he's ready to come back and rejoin the team, the majors? Yeah, I think it's just, uh, he just needs to get a quality chance. You know, it's all about when you bring a guy up, you know, I, you know, I don't have to tell you this. When you, when you, when you bring a guy up, you want to give him every chance to succeed. So was that, the, was that the case when they brought Collins up? That's the whole thing. It's, it's, is he put in a situation where, you know, he can be successful. Same with Sebi. That's just sometimes it's out of necessity where guys will get called up and it's not necessarily the time, but they'll just call them up. So maybe that was a situation with Zach when uh, Wellington got hurt. But um, I, I just don't believe that he got the proper uh, shake in Chicago that maybe he was looking forward to. So when he came down here, he's just talking about, you know, being being a more productive player as far as, be making more contact, uh, like you said, bending the knees, those kind of those kind of little small uh, mechanical issues that uh, that were pointed out to him in Chicago that he's working on here. He'll be back up. He'll be definitely back up, obviously, with September call-ups. So it's just really about him giving getting the the proper chance to perform every day and get comfortable in a lineup every day. I think that's with any player, it's all about a comfort zone and you know being thrown up and down in and out of a lineup, it, there's no sense of, uh, of consistency. So I think that's part of the issue with Zach Collins when he got called up and while he struggled so hard, it was just, he just didn't find, he knew that he was going to come back down once Wellington uh, got better and, and came back. So I don't think it was a situation where he was put in the best of, uh, of conditions for him to succeed. So he'll work on his craft here. He'll be back up in Chicago in two weeks. Now, the Charlotte Knights have set a new team record in home runs hit in 2019. It has been well documented the amount of home runs we are seeing in AAA, both in the International League and most definitely in the Pacific Coast League, where the numbers are just bonkers, video game levels. And, you know, some of those hitters that we're starting to see that have been more productive in AAA than we were expecting uh, is on the Knights. And that's Yerman Mercedes. And there is a lot of White Sox fans right now, Jonathan. They would love to see Yermer Mercedes get a call up, maybe even in September, to see because he hit in Birmingham and then he comes to Charlotte and he's continuing to hit. Can he hit in the major leagues? White Sox fans would love to know that. Uh, but, you know, watching Yermer Mercedes, what's the scouting report on him? And do you think that he's ready to join the majors? Uh, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, you're right. This, this is a very hitter friendly ballpark. And like, like you said, he's been mashing all through Birmingham and Ashton Winston. So uh, it's hard to say. The question is, where are you going to play him? Are you just going to have him as a DH in Chicago when you send him up? Because uh, it looks like catcher is not going to be an option. He's really not. He's playing some third base here. But where are you going to play him if you call him up? That's the whole thing. And, yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got he, – he's, maybe, maybe he's 5'10", but he's so – maybe he's just so built through the legs, through the hips and through the legs. His core is so powerful. And just to watch him in the, in the cage pregame with the batting practice, it's just amazing to watch him. It's so effortless for him. Yeah, and I think he's the kind of guy where you would like to see him at least get a chance. 
Now, once again, it's all about putting guys in the best situations to succeed. Um, is that necessarily the best thing for him? Uh, that's not real. Obviously, that's not my decision, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think maybe it, it's a call of what do, uh, what do the White Sox want to do with him as far as do they want to see him be brought up and contribute right away or I mean, is it even worth it? So I don't know. It, it, it seems like it's kind of a toss up. It's a 50, 50. I mean, the fans want to see him because he mashes down here, but this is a very hitter friendly ballpark. Will he do the same thing in the majors? We'll see. Again, the Charlotte Knights are in a tight race for the postseason as they are trying to get the wild card in the international league. So even if Robert and Collins and Mercedes are seriously considered to rejoin the team, in September, it may not be right away September 1st if the Charlotte Knights do earn a postseason spot. The White Sox may give them that opportunity to stay with the Knights throughout the postseason and possibly rejoin the White Sox later in September. Uh, but before we sign off on this segment, Jonathan, you had an awesome experience getting a chance to catch up with 2005 World Series hero Jose Contreras. And he'll always be remembered uh, with White Sox fans for not just being terrific in 2005. He was also awesome in 2006. He may have been the best starting pitcher in all of Major League Baseball uh, for a good year and a half from 2015 through the first half of the 2016 season. But following your Twitter thread, I think he really provided some insight on the difficulties, especially for Cuban-born baseball players have, and adapting to not just the major league level game, but also the lifestyle of living in the United States. Uh, what did you learn from him about his experience? And what is his thoughts about someone like Luis Robert, who's knocking on the door, join the Chicago White Sox soon? Yeah, they're, 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 they're traveling very similar paths. And, and I wish, I really wish I had more time to talk to Jose because he was so good. He was just he was just being pushed and pulled in so many different directions in the press box. And I just grabbed him for a quick second. And of course you have to go through the translator. So that kind of takes some of your time. Uh, uh, it's very similar as far as their paths. And in uh, Jose would know exactly the, the exact same, you know, path that Luis almost very close to the exact same path that Luis is going to walk. So it was interesting to hear him speak from experience on what is going to be coming for Luis in the next year or two as he moves up. And yeah, like you said, uh, for, for Cuban players who come over from, uh, from Cuba, it's different than a Puerto Rican player or a Dominican player or a Venezuelan player. They're all different and they're all different scenarios and they're all different situations. And like Jose said, it's very important. People talking about Jose being traded at the trade design. It's very important to have guys like Jose, like Joan who are already with the team who can ease Luis's transition into the major leagues because this is a fellow countryman. They speak not, I mean, they speak the same language. They have the, the same uh, mannerisms. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's very important to have mentors in your organization. As uh, Jose said, when he talked about uh, El Duque, it's very important to have those pieces in place. Once again, for the, for the, a player, in this case, Luis Robert, to succeed as much and as great as he could. Reason why Jose Abreu has a very good chance of still being with the White Sox, especially for the 2020 season, not only 
as a run producer in the lineup, but also being that mentor to help with the transition for Luis Robert, because for sure we will see Luis Robert with the Chicago White Sox in early 2020, and he'll already have a support system in place, as you mentioned, Jonathan, with Yohan Mikata and Jose Breu. And hopefully that transition uh, is a smooth one and it helps Luis Robert perform immediately for the White Sox as a 2020 could they could be a dark horse contender uh, if everything lines up well. You could follow Jonathan on Twitter. I highly recommend it as he brings all the action as far as videos and interviews uh, via Twitter from the Charlotte Knights. He's at follow me for three. And Jonathan, as always, man, thank you so much for joining the show. And hopefully the Knights find themselves in the postseason in 2019. That would be nice. Uh, it would be a little postseason baseball. It would be the first time in my three years here, so uh, that will be fun to watch if it happens. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Josh. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Alrighty, let's dig into the minor league report. Josh and Jonathan covered Charlotte fairly extensively, so there isn't much I can add except that Luis Roberts' second homer of the game on Sunday came off Deonor Navarro. Yes, that Deonor Navarro. So we'll skip Charlotte and start in Birmingham, where Luis Gonzalez made his latest push to a 700 OPS with his ninth homer of the year in the Barons' victory over Jacksonville on Sunday. He's now at 679 on the year, leading Blake Rutherford, who was at 666. Luis Basabe has fallen off the pace at 639. On the pitching side, Lincoln Hensman tossed a pair of quality starts over the last week, lowering his ERA from 6.47 to 5.78. Down in Winston-Salem, Steele Walker seems like he's sprinting to the finish line of a successful first full pro season. He's got an 8-game hitting streak, giving him a 984 OPS and more walks than strikeouts in August. Andrew Vaughn has walked 7 times to just 2 strikeouts over his last 9 games, so he's going largely unchallenged as well. Speaking of walks and strikeouts, Jonathan Stever has nearly 6 strikeouts for every walk this season. That's 143 strikeouts to 24 walks over 133 innings. Kannapolis doesn't have much going for it, especially since Lennon Sosa finished the week 0 for 14 to drag his OPS down to 622, and none of the other talent stands out. Oh, and Great Falls has been rained out in four of its last eight games, and the Voyagers have only scored 10 runs in the four games they played. So we turn our lonely eyes to the Arizona League, where second-rounder Matthew Thompson and third-rounder Andrew Dahlquist have embarked on their pro careers. They're getting their feet wet an inning at a time. Thompson allowed an unearned run in his first outing, while Dahlquist has thrown a pair of scoreless innings, including a 1-2-3 frame on Sunday. One pitcher who jumps out more is 20-year-old Yoelvin Sylvan, who has been slowly stretched out over his first stateside season. He tossed a career-high six shutout innings on Thursday and has a 2.25 ERA with 44 strikeouts to just five walks over 40 innings this year. He's a little old for the competition, but he's posted outstanding lines in the only two pro seasons he's thrown. He was the DSL White Sox second best pitcher last year. Speaking of those DSL Sox, they have six games left in their season, and at 34 and 32, they're flirting with their first winning record since 2011. Win-loss records don't mean a whole lot in isolation in the minor leagues, but this is a team that went 18 and 54 last season, so the talent has improved. They're scoring an above-average amount of runs, and they wrapped up their week with Elijah Tatis having his best ever pro day. He went 3-for-3 three three with a double on Saturday, which snapped an 0-for-22 skid. 
That'll do it for the Minor League Report. Now let's answer some of your questions in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, or helping support the site and show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And I'm rejoined with Jim Margulis to answer your guys' questions this week. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Paul Riker. And Paul is asking... Dylan Cease, Michael Kopech, Lucas Giolito, and Ronaldo Lopez were all called up with less than stellar numbers in AAA. Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert killed AAA, but their promotions were or are being delayed. Any logic behind those choices? Well, I think with uh, Kopech, Giolito, and Lopez are all separate from Cease. Um, when it comes to Kopech and Giolito and Lopez, they all didn't have, I guess, on the season... Impressive numbers at AAA, but they all had at least one month of rolling, like having reliable starts of six innings or better and showing that they had shown the level, you know, shown what they needed to show at that level. Cease was different. Like Cease didn't have the kind of month, uh, the, the kind of lead up to his major league debut that the others had. Uh, Cease was more or less just, uh, I think, maybe a victim of the AAA or the major league baseball and the AAA environment, especially Charlotte's just being a basically a, California at altitude environment on the East Coast in the International League. And you, you look at the other ERAs of uh, Charlotte Knights pitchers and other ERAs of pitchers around the league and, and AAA in general, and you just think like, hey, it's counterproductive for him to be here. He's just learning how to survive. He's not actually learning really the craft. He's learning how to pitch in an environment that does not exist anywhere else. He'll be pitching mainly. So I think that's a case where you, you set him aside from the others. But I think otherwise, it's just mainly a pitcher position player divide and pitchers being, I guess, bigger health risks or having more things that can go wrong. Uh, Jimenez and Robert, I mean, yeah, they can get hurt and they have gotten hurt. But I think when it comes to their overall projections, it's a lot easier to reliably project uh, big numbers or at least the important numbers that make big money in arbitration and and set those kind of records going uh, year to year um you know some pitchers are able to set records like david price made a bank made bank in uh the arbitration especially having four years of it but uh, otherwise i think when it comes to position players setting records like uh you know josh donaldson and chris bryant they're just the guys who are um you know putting up big home run numbers big rbi numbers the kind of standard triple crown numbers the arbitration process uses so I think that's why their uh, early ARB payday, waiting for them to secure a contract extension before calling them up, I think that's why it has like an outsized importance for position players versus pitchers. And uh, uh, I'm not really, yeah, I think at this point, you know, with Moncada hitting for agency at a far different point than Jimenez is and a far different point from uh, Luis Robert is, I think the time for that has passed and they should call him up, but we've had that conversation before. Paul, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Hope. And Mark, who's a Patreon supporter, so Mark, thank you so much for your support, is asking, the White Sox have been either 29th or 30th in baseball in both pitching walks-to-strikeout ratio or batting strikeout-to-walk ratio the last three seasons. Which one is more imperative to improve in order to get back to relevance? I think um, I would say the hitting side of it. Because there are more 
hitters that need to be on the program for it to turn around. I think with pitchers, if say if the White Sox got Garrett Cole and they plugged in Garrett Cole to the top spot of their rotation, that would make uh, a pretty big dent in walk-to-strikeout ratios if he's replacing somebody like Dylan Covey. You know, going from Covey to Cole is a massive jump, and then like all it takes is a little bit of lightning in a bottle with a reliever or two and a little bit of improvement from, say, Ronaldo Lopez, and you know your walk-to-strikeout ratio is there. It requires less work. It just needs the right guys in the right spots, but it needs fewer right guys for it to happen. If you got the equivalent of Garrett Cole for walks and strikeouts and put him into the White Sox lineup, you'd still have a lot of, you'd still have eight other spots to contend with and eight spots that aren't, you know, I guess moving the chain and helping get those at bats to that Garrett Cole grade hitter, you know, Anthony Rendon, let's just put him there, you know, like that, that grade of hitter. So I think when it comes to improving it, I think it's imperative for the White Sox to make a bigger effort to improve the hitting side of it, just because they're going to need more than one guy to do it. And, uh, some of that help, I think, will come internally, but they're also going to have to make a concentrated effort to either improve the way they prepare or, or hope that... I, I think they're, they're making steps to try to improve their uh, preparation methods, but I think it's unclear just how much that works, and really just it's it's more important to either build those hitters in the minors or import them from elsewhere if you think that there's a, a way to unlock production from a guy who you might be able to pry away from another organization. Look at Houston, right? Houston has one of the best walk rates in all of Major League Baseball, and they strike out the fewest in Major League Baseball. And they don't chase. They have the fifth whiff percentage, or chase percentage, I should say. And they have the best contact rate on pitches in the strike zone. And it is something that they have worked on with their hitters, and I know there are some White Sox fans that give us crap on Twitter about bragging about the Houston Astros. But this is an example of a team that went through a turnaround and became a juggernaut. And a large part of that is their offense. And that's how the Houston Astros really face it. They are very patient. They know what pitches to hit and you look at their numbers and they're right there at the very top. And they're still very strong on the pitching front, but I agree with you, Jim. I think it's gotta be the offense and the pitching uh, that really needs to improve on the strikeout to walk rate. And I think it's a mix of guys. Uh, When you look at the Astros, they have some guys they produced, like uh, Alex Bregman coming in. He's he's somebody who really helps their walk-to-strikeout rate, so they had that. But they also got, like, Brian McCann uh, over, I think it was um, Evan Gaddis that year, or or, no, Jason Castro. It was, you know, they they upgraded catcher from the outside by getting a guy who strikes out less and has better control of the strike zone. They got uh, Josh Reddick to help in the outfield when their outfield struck out a ton. Uh, Marwin Gonzalez came in, Yuli Gurriel. So they, they they brought in these guys from the outside who helped those numbers. And then, you know, they did it again. Uh, well, I mean, Gurriel's progressing to a full-time starter now. But even then, you know, they had Nori Aoki the following year. They had, uh, and I'm trying to think this year, there's one piece I'm missing. Michael Brantley. Michael Brantley, that's the one. Yes. So, I mean, like, they've they've been able to produce some guys and and they've been able to cut down like George Springer strikeouts. So he's somebody who's positively developed into a plus in that regard, but also they've had to go elsewhere and find those guys that fit their system. And I think the White Sox uh, need to probably prioritize that more when they look to add from the outside. Do we even know the White Sox have a system for hitters? Well, I mean, do we know create... what kind that they like? <laughs> no, I mean, I meant, meant like you know, the Astros have a system. The White Sox need to have a system or at least you know, have uh, put more weight on walks and strikeouts because I think as we as we saw with the Astros when they were trying to configure their offense, Milwaukee Brewers. If you don't want to hear about the Astros, 
the Brewers are another team that positively configured their offense by going away from strikeout guys, um, you know, too many strikeout guys, I should say, and finding guys like Christian Yelich and Lorenzo Cain. And, you know, not only are they great players, but they're great players who are more contact-based for the amount of power they provide. And, you know, they, they found that help from the outside too. So, you know, it's more than the Astros doing it. Other teams are doing it. And uh, the White Sox, probably because they haven't wanted to pony up for those skills, just haven't really prioritized it. And I think, you know, as we see with these numbers, uh, they pay a price for doing so. And this leads to our next question on P.O. Sox from Brett Davis. And Brett is asking, there's been a lot of progress this year, but to become a truly good team, they've got to start working counts better and taking some walks. Can any current White Sox player be expected to improve in that area? Well, I think uh, Yohan Makata can. I think he's somebody who can eventually be a plus, at least in the walk column. I think he'll you'll have some swing and miss him in him always, but I think the walks will uh, float upwards as he gets more confident in his contact abilities and teams are a little bit wary of attacking him because he's proving himself to be the White Sox best hitter. So I think that's a case where... Um, yeah, I could see him drawing like 70 walks a year and that would be a godsend for this lineup right now. It doesn't sound like a very impressive total, but nobody in the White Sox are, is going to come close this year. So there's that. Elsewhere, I don't, you know, Eloy is going to improve, I think, his walk to strikeout numbers, but I don't think he's going to be like a 70 walk a year guy. I think he'll be more like 50, which is fine, but especially given the kind of damage he can do on balls that are uh, in the strike zone. But I just don't think he'll be somebody who really works counts and makes pitchers sweat. I think he just pounds mistakes and and even pounds pitches that aren't quite mistakes, but are good pitches. So there's that. Um, elsewhere, yeah, I mean, not really. There's, I mean, the outfielders are going to be in flux. The second base is going to be in flux. They're going to replace that. Jose Abreu isn't going to help in that regard. Um, James McCann has moments, but he's somebody who can be attacked, I think. So, yeah, they're going to need some help from the outside or from the system. And Zach Collins, I guess we'll see with him. I think he's... He's remade himself into something interesting in Charlotte. We'll see if it's just kind of a mirage or a product of just being able to hit AAA pitching better, but he's putting more balls in play and trying not to be so susceptible to deep counts and two-strike swinging, and, and we'll see if that happens. But he's somebody who, if should it somehow click and he meets his draft day profile, he should be that that like 70 to 90 walk a year guy and, and help keep the lineup moving. Uh, Andrew Vaughn and Steele Walker, I think, right now are on that track. Um, but otherwise not a whole lot of, you know, I think that's where that failure, uh, in the, in the Birmingham outfield hurts a lot. Cause I think Basave was going to be a decent walk guy. Uh, Luis Gonzalez could have been Gavin Sheets is okay, but Gavin Sheets is redundant with Collins and, uh, and, uh, Andrew Vaughn at this point. So maybe he's somebody who can be moved for somebody who can help, but, uh, there isn't a whole lot of help there. And I think that's why the Jake Berger injury maybe looms a bit larger than uh, we give it credit for because he's so easy to forget about just because he hasn't been active in so long. But when the White Sox drafted him, his bat and his ability to control the strike zone and, and hit pitches inside it and lay off pitches outside it was his uh, you know, the reason they got him and the reason that uh, they, they wanted to make a dent in this walk-to-strikeout divide. And he's not around to do it. And they really hadn't found um, anybody else who can provide that kind of plate coverage or that plate discipline, I should say. Brett, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that asked questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle 
on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Again, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And you can help support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our podcast listeners get an ad-free show. They also get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests and ask questions, uh, ask additional PO Sox questions that we answer. Uh, so if you enjoy our writing and you enjoy the podcast and you would like more, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Also thank our guest Jonathan Lee down in Charlotte who's been co- who's been doing a great job this year covering the Charlotte Knights and even the Winston Salem Dash and the Canapolis Intimidators for us at Sox Machine and we're very grateful for Jonathan uh, to do that and who knows maybe the Charlotte Knights will make it to the postseason and he'll get to cover some postseason games which us in Chicago are still waiting for uh, not to be salty. But anyways, (laughs) but thanks to Jonathan so much for joining the podcast. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G, because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters, the more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.